out of the window yells, Fug off out of it, will you? No response. He revs the engine, lets the car slide forward till it's just nudging the backs of their thighs. Shaved heads swivel towards him. Barely time to get the window up before the whole pack closes in, hands with whitening fingertips pressed against the glass, banging on the bonnet. A glimpse of a furred yellow tongue, spit trapped in bubbles between bared teeth. Noses squashed against the glass. Then, like a blanket of flies, they lift off him, not one by one, all at the same time drifting across the road, indifferent now, too good-tempered, too sober to want to bother with him. One lad lingers, spoiling for a fight. Leave it, Trev, Nick hears. Stupid old fart ain't worth it. He twists round, sees a line of honking cars, yells, Not my fucking fault! Then, realising they can't hear him, jabs two fingers in the air. Turns to face the front. Jesus, the lights are back to red. By the time he reaches the station, he's twenty minutes late. Leaving the car in the short-stay car park, he runs to the platform only to find it deserted. He stands, staring down the curve of closed doors, while a fear he knows to be irrational begins to nibble at his belly. A few months ago, a fourteen-year-old girl was thrown from a train by some yob who hadn't got anywhere when he tried to chat her up. Miranda's thirteen. This is all rubbish. He knows that. But then, like everybody else, he lives in the shadow of monstrosities. Peter Sutcliffe's bearded face. The number plate of a house in Cromwell Street. Three figures smudged on a video surveillance screen. An older boy taking a toddler by the hand while his companion strides ahead, eager for the atrocity to come. Think. Hot day. Long journey. She'll fancy a Coke. But when he looks into the cafe, he can't see her. The place is crowded. Disgruntled bundles sipping orange tea from thick cups. Shifting suitcases grudgingly aside as the edges between the tables. A smell of hot bodies. Bloom of sweat on pale skins like the sheen on rotten meat. God, what a place. And then he sees her. Where he should have known all along she would be, waiting sensibly beneath the clock. Her legs longer and thinner than he remembers. Shoulders hunched to hide the budding breasts. She looks awkward. Gawky. Miranda, who's never awkward, whose every movement is poised and controlled. He wants to rush up and kiss her, but stops himself, knowing this is a moment he'll remember as long as he's capable of remembering anything. Then she catches sight of him. Her face is transformed. For a few seconds, she looks like the old Miranda. Only her kiss isn't the boisterous hug of even two months ago, but a grown-up peck delivered across the divide of her consciously hollowed chest. Feeling ridiculously hurt, he picks up her suitcase, puts his other arm around her shoulder, and leads her to the car. Fran becomes aware that Gareth has come into the room behind her. He moves quietly, and his eyes wince behind his glasses. No more than an exaggerated blink, but it tweaks her nerves, says, You're a lousy mother. Perhaps I am, she thinks. She's failed, at any rate, in what seems to be a woman's chief duty to her son, to equip him with a father who's more than a bipedal sperm bank. 
Of course, she has supplied Nick, but he's bugger all use. Fantastic with other people's problem kids, bloody useless with his own. Back to the shopping list. Bran flakes, bump, toothpaste, toothbrush in case Miranda's forgotten hers, air freshener, vinegar, potatoes, something else. What the hell was it? Gareth blinks again, breathing audibly through his mouth. She's tired of the guilt, fed up to the back teeth with attributing every nervous tick, every piece of bad behaviour, every failed exam to the one crucial omission. Nobody knows. Suppose it wasn't the absence of a father. Suppose it was the presence of two mothers. God knows her mother would sink anybody. And the alternative, which it suited everybody to forget, was the North Sea or the incinerator or whatever the bloody hell they did. And he'd come within a hair's breadth, literally, of that. Lying on the bed already shaved when she decided she couldn't go through with it. She started to cry. The gynaecologist hugged her, and later sent her a bill for a hundred and fifty quid. Must have been the most expensive hug in history. And then she got up, walked down the long gleaming corridor, and out into the open air. She stood outside the phone box for half an hour, a cold wind blowing up her fanny, before plucking up the courage to ring Mark at work. Put on hold for five minutes, she fed ten peas she couldn't afford into the box and listened to the theme song from Dr. Zhivago. When Mark finally came on the line, he said, I knew you wouldn't go through with it. Typical. Mark had to be in control, had to know what other people were going to do before they did. Later, in bed, he said, Fran, there's no need to worry. I'll marry you. I said I would, and I will. You needn't, she said, pressing her hand over the place where the baby was. And he didn't. Gone before the hair grew back. Gareth, what do you want? Gareth's thinking how ugly she looks with her great big bulge sticking out. He wonders what the baby looks like. Is it a proper baby with eyes and things, or is it just a blob? He'd watched a Brill video at Digger's house when his mam and Teddy were still in bed. A woman gave birth to a maggot because her boyfriend had turned into a fly or something like that. He never really got the hang of it because Digger kept fast-forwarding to the good bits. And the maggot was all squashy when it came out, and they kept looking at each other to see who'd be the first to bath, but nobody did. What are you staring at? Fran asks sharply. Nothing. Have you done your homework? Yeah. What was it? When's she coming? She's the cat's grandmother. When's Miranda coming? A glance at the clock. They should be here now. What did you have to do? The Great Fire of London. I thought you'd done that. Not with Miss Bales. Why is she? Why is she coming? Fran hears herself repeat in a Joyce Grenfell comic nanny sort of voice. She can't believe it's coming out of her mouth. This is what having kids does to you. Because it's her home. A derisory click of the tongue. 
Gareth edges closer, scuffing his sleeve along the table. In a moment, he's going to touch her, and God forgive her, she doesn't want him to. What's wrong with Barbara? Fran opens her mouth to insist on some more respectful way of referring to Barbara, then closes it again. How is a child supposed to refer to its stepfather's first wife? Auntie Barbara sounds silly. And Mrs. Helford, though technically correct, doesn't sound right either. She's ill. What sort of ill? Fran shrugs. Ill enough to be in hospital. How long she coming for? Six weeks. Shit. Yes, Fran thinks. Shit. I hope you're going to make more of an effort this time, Gareth. You don't have to play together. We don't play. True, Fran thinks. Gareth's obsession with zapping billions of aliens to oblivion hardly seems to count as play. You'll have to be here to meet her when she comes, but why? Because I say so. He reaches her at last, rests his hand on her shoulder for a second while she sits motionless, enduring the contact. After a while, the small, warm thing is lifted off her, and he goes away. Sorry I'm late, Nick says, heaving Miranda's suitcase into the boot. Traffic's terrible. It's all right. He knows she's hoping for something to happen, a cup of tea, anything to prolong the time alone with him before she has to face Fran and Gareth. Well, it can't be like that. Did you have a good journey? All right. She gets in, clicks her seatbelt, sighs. Is term over? I don't know. I missed the last few weeks.